0: Huh. I don't understand why we didn't hear it to be recorded.
1: It is recording? It says pause. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. Welcome to people online and people in the room. And uh, before I introduce Tom White, our speaker for this afternoon or evening, I'm not sure which it is, or some other time where you might be, I want to say a couple of thank yous uh, to the people who are really working on the technological side of things for us. I want to thank uh, our helpers here, John Murray and Greg Yates, for doing the recording and the taping and all the technical stuff here in the room. And I want to thank Shuffy and Maya, who has also helped her as the Zoom host for figuring out all the complications with Zoom and figuring out how to Post things and everything, and I want to thank um, Laura Trippy for her keeping everybody posted and sending out reminders. And especially, I want to thank her for going beyond the call of duty to create a really wonderful resource page for the time talks and the time teachings. And you can find this research page, page resource page on. The Everyday Zen website if you go to uh, programs and then you go to seminars and click on one of the time seminars it comes up the link to the resource page comes up and there's some really good things on there some of which have been suggested to me by other people and we'll be adding to it as we go along and you might enjoy looking at it and there's some videos and things too so and if you come across something that you want to tell me about, let me know. I'm loving getting all these things from people about, oh, here's a funny thing about time or an interesting thing. So um, don't forget about that. So thank you, those people, and other people who I may have forgotten for your invisible work for Everyday Zen and our seminars. So I'm really happy to introduce Tom White, our speaker for tonight our teacher for tonight. Tom found his way to everyday Zen through his late wife, Leslie Scalapino. uh, After her death, Leslie was a good friend of Norman's and she, like Norman, was a poet and a Buddhist. And Tom got to know Norman, I think he came close to Norman in 2010 when Norman conducted the ceremony for Leslie's cremation and Tom began practicing with Everyday Sand at that point, and he was a really committed and devoted practitioner for years and member of the Sangha, came to the seminars, retreats, sashins, and he served the Sangha as the registrar for our uh, monthly all-day sittings, which, as Jane Flint knows, is no small task. And um, he received the precepts from Norman in, I think it was in 2012, and the name he was given is Kan Shin Shen Shen Zen, which it translates as broad and generous heart, immediately as it is. He's an as-it-is person. He gave a way-seeking mind talk in the seminar in 2014, which is available on the Everyday Zen website. In 2018, Tom and his partner, Tina Arnold, moved from Oakland to Rio Vista, unfortunately far from Green Gulch and Tiburon, so we haven't been seeing him since then. Um, I'm really glad he's here now. And I know you're eager to hear from him, but I want to say some more things about him. I have, I feel compelled to tell you something about his non-Zen life because it's pretty extraordinary. And for 50 years, he worked as a molecular evolutionary biologists studying the genetic DNA relationships among different beings, mainly humans and fungi, and also many of the pathogens, viruses, and bacteria that cause human diseases. Many of the molecular, and P, that is, PCR tests that are common today and that we ourselves are using are for cancer, for infectious and genetic diseases were developed by Tom and his various teams of scientists. And he's retired from that work, but currently he is a scientific advisor for the Human Rights Center at UC Berkeley, for the International Committee on Missing Persons in The Hague, and for the DNA for DNA Bridge, which is a nonprofit organization that works to reunite migrant migrant children with their families. So and he, he has other He has his hands in other really good projects, too, I know, but it would take a long time to tell you all the good things he's done. Um, So some years ago at my invitation, Tom wrote a wonderful piece on God and physics for an issue of the Buddhist magazine, Inquiring Mind, that I was editing at that time. And so naturally I realized now when we're talking about time that we need him again to talk about time and physics. So here he is, and I introduce you to Tom White, and we will enjoy his talk. Thank you, Tom, for coming.
2: Okay. Thank you, Susan. I'm going to try to share my screen to start out here. Hmm. Let's see. I think it's...
0: I think it's this one. So can everyone see that first slide of what we call the universe?
2: Uh, I I can only see myself here for a minute, so let's see if I can... It looks great. It's perfect. Okay, good. Thank you. So... um, <clears throat> Let me start by thanking Susan for the inviting me to, to give this, give this talk. talk. hope we're getting some feedback there, I guess. Um, give a talk in the seminar series on time, and it's with gratitude that I join everyone this evening in space time. My initial response to Susan's invitation was to feel a similar sense of bewilderment as I did in 2013 when Sue asked me to write that article for inquiring mind on the subject of God, quantum, particle, physics, cosmology, and evolution in a thousand words instead of in a thousand years. But time is a more difficult subject and I'm neither a quantum physicist nor an astrophysicist, only a scientist is interested in these fields and theories of time. <clears throat> I'll try to briefly cover several aspects of this topic. The concept of now, space-time, past, present, and future, the block universe, the arrow of time, the unobservable universe, and change and the impermanence, followed by some of my own views on this subject, but in 2016, in a conference on time in cosmology, the physicists in attendance wrestled with the same questions and whether time is fundamental or emergent, and most of those issues still remain unresolved. And still are at this time in this talk. Now,
0: all of us in this room, well, let's see here, I can change that slide.
2: Hmm. Okay, yeah. All of this room, all the people in this room and those attending by Zoom, can probably agree that we are here now, even though some people on Zoom may be in other time zones. That is, they are here in our now time, but we are not yet in their their future time, or maybe we were in their past time. If we think of time as a succession of snapshots, much like the individual frames of a movie film, then we could agree that particular snapshots, such as the ones I'm showing by an arrow here, of ours and theirs in the sequence are now, even if we are at different local times. But if either of us is moving in space, then their now snapshot will line up with ours either in our past if they're moving away from us or in our future if they're moving towards us. That's because movement through space affects time. And these are intimately related as the concept of space-time. But the essence is that time is only a relative concept a physical dimension like space, this would be space and this would be time, in which past, present and the future are always in existence. Observers that are moving relative to each each other will disagree about how much space and time they have covered. They will only agree on the space-time interval between events located in both space and time. And everything moves at the speed of life, light through space-time, but you can trade off how much you move in space or time. Space-time is also affected by mass and clocks near massive objects like the earth or a black hole, change time more slowly. This phenomenon has been demonstrated in multiple experiments on clocks in satellites, airplanes, and even tall buildings relative to ground level. So in a very important sense, now is different for each person. Although the differences are small enough for us to ignore in everyday life. The principal laws of physics, such as Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, or energy equals mass times the speed of light multiplied by the speed of light, are indifferent to time. That is, they describe or predict actions equally well towards the past or the future. Moreover, they say nothing at all about the point we call now a special moment or so it appears for us, but seemingly undefined when we talk about the universe at large. The resulting timeless cosmos as shown in this image is sometimes called a block universe, a fixed four-dimensional space-time structure that is very hot, very small, and dense at the end, we call the past, and very large, cold, and diffuse at the end, we call the future. Any flow of time or passage through it must presumably be a mental construct or other illusion. So on the left side here, quantum fluctuations, which is particles or energy appearing out of nothing and then briefly disappearing or remaining long enough in the past or matter to have exceeded the amount of antimatter, went through a massive inflation expanding by a factor of about 10 to the 32nd power, a huge expansion. And then that was followed by a period called the Dark Ages where the universe was opaque. And the first stars did not appear until the universe was only about 400 million years old. And the first development of galaxies and planets occurred about a billion years ago. And we are now at about the 13.7 billion year level where dark energy, an unknown substance is accelerating the expansion of the universe that has occurred so far. Now, the first law of thermodynamics says that energy is always conserved. For example, the energy from a steam engine, which founded the Industrial Revolution back in the late 19th century, the energy from a steam engine that arises from the motion of a piston and the dissipation of heat equals the energy required to initially heat the water enough to produce steam. That's because lurking below the surface of our seemingly solid existence. Is an atomic world in constant vibration. The hotter an object is, the more violently its atoms shift from one moment to the next. And heat is the flow of this energy from the atoms of one object to the atoms of another. But theoretically, the process could be reversed and all the energy would still be conserved. So if all of the physical laws of this universe don't depend on time, is the passage of time simply an illusion of the human brain? Perhaps the second law
0: of thermodynamics provides an explanation. Let's see if I can change this again.
2: Perhaps the second law of thermodynamics provides an explanation for the hour of time, our intuitive sense of past, present, and future. This law says that the total entropy of a system, which can be thought of as disorder or chaos, always increases overall, even if there are some phenomena that temporarily create more order, such as light.
0: So I'm going to hold this Whoop! that seemed to disappear. Hang on a second. Let's see if I can... No,
2: that didn't work. Well, anyway... <laughs> I have, I have a book that is about uh, the end of time. It's about 425 pages long by Brian Greene. And in this organized form of the book, it has very low entropy. All the pages from one to 425 are organized and numbered according to the principles that are described in the book. But if I were to take that book and separate all the pages and throw them into the air, and then collect all the individual pages and reassemble a book where the pages were not ordered from numbers 1 to 425, there would be more versions of that book or those books than there are atoms in the universe. It would be the permutations of the number 425, which is greater than 10 raised to the 200th power That would be an extremely high entropy state, but it gives you some notion of what a low entropy state would be a book and the complete reorganization of all the pages of a book
0: in that example. Now,
2: the original universe at the beginning was small and and compact and an extremely low entropy, State, but as electrons and pr- positrons and protons and protons began to uh, form, and some of the initial hydrogen, which was just a, a proton and an electron, began to fuse into one of the simplest elements, helium. After ten minutes, and then as more atoms began to form over the first million years, and the first galaxies at a billion years, I mean and then stars at roughly 10 billion years, most of them, the entropy of the universe has increased dramatically. The universe apparently began about 14 billion years ago as an immensely compact, highly ordered thing, and it's still accelerating in size and consequently in disorder. The big bang was not an explosion but the expansion of space itself. It did not happen at some point in space but everywhere in space at the same time. There is no center of the expansion and all observers seem see the same thing no matter where they are situated in the universe or in which direction they look. In addition, the objects that we can see now as they existed 14 billion years ago are now so far away and moving away even faster that we will never be able to see them as they are in their now. They're beyond our cosmic horizon in what we call the unobservable universe. We can think of the universe mm. as a loaf of bread where the raisins are stars. The apparent increase in velocity with distance is due to the increase in the amount of space It has expanded in a given amount of time. So here, if this length of the loaf of bread is originally 30 centimeters and now it doubles in size to 60, you can see that two stars or raisins that were only three centimeters apart are now six. But ones that were originally 20 centimeters are now 40. But velocity is a distance moved per unit of time. So for a given time, the further raisins move faster. The raisins are not moving through the dough. The dough itself is rising. Space itself is expanding. The scale of the universe
0: is getting bigger.
2: Everyone is familiar with the phenomenon of an horizon such as this one. You can see objects as far as its edge,
0: but not beyond it.
2: The following two figures illustrate the concept of a cosmic horizon. In a static universe, the distance in light years to the horizon Equals the age of the universe in years, or about 14 billion. Galaxies exist beyond this horizon, but their light has not had enough time to reach us. Nothing that happens in those regions can have any effect on us, nor can we influence them. We are causally
0: disconnected.
2: In this figure, the cosmic horizon for an observer on Earth reaches to points A and B, but not beyond them. So we cannot see beyond 15 billion years in this figure, because light that's beyond our cosmic horizon has not yet had enough time to reach us. Further, an observer at point A is already beyond the horizon of the observer at point B. And since the universe is expanding at an accelerated rate, A will never observe B and vice versa. And an observer on Earth will not be able to see where A and B are in there now. We can only see them where they were 15 billion years ago in this figure. From, From estimates of the accelerating rate of expansion of the universe, We can also estimate that its current size is about 46 billion years in radius or 92 billion years across. But only about 14 billion years in any direction is currently visible to us. In addition to the inherent complexity of these subjects, There is a problem that our language may not be up to fully describing and therefore to understanding them. Time was imbued in 58 of the 178 words in the introduction to this seminar. So we're using words with time to describe time and that could present a problem. In 2013, during a visit to my alma mater to watch early stages in the assembly of the James Webb Telescope, I met Adam Rees, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for his research on using supernovae as a kind of standard candle to calibrate the distance of galaxies from Earth. When I asked if time, like light and information, could not escape the gravitational pull of a massive black hole, he replied, that
0: question has no meaning.
2: This reminded me of another time I'd heard that answer to my question. In 1968, I was living in a small village in West Africa, trying to learn to speak the unwritten language of a local tribe. My informant, an elementary school teacher, spoke six languages as well as his own, including English, Italian, German, and the languages of three Adjacent tribes. The differences between some of those tribal languages were as great as the difference between English and Chinese or Hindi. After learning the present and past tenses, I asked to learn the future tense.
0: He replied, our language has no future tense. Puzzled, I asked,
2: how do you say tomorrow? He replied, that question has no meaning.
0: Tomorrow is in your world. In ours, things simply change.
2: Persisting, I said, Our lesson is almost over. How do you describe what you do next?
0: He replied,
2: I am coming to go. That is, I am taking steps to change where I am. In your world,
0: I am gone.
2: Thank you for listening to this talk, which is filled with unintuitive, often incomprehensible ideas about space, time and the universe.
0: I am coming to go now impermanently. This is the question for the discussion session.
2: This is a quote from Zen master Kezan Jokin in the Ru, chapter. There is no location, boundary, or surface. So how can anything, even as minute, as autumn down, possibly exist? So in the first line of this, those are the dimensions and description of space.
0: And the universe
2: arose from nothing. Exist is the element of time in this quote. So my question for discussion is, what does possibly exist mean to you? And after the breakout groups, I'll have one final slide to follow up on my answer to the question. Thank you.